Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a thorough going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at a sonnet by Lady Mary Roth from her sequence of sonnets Pamphylia to Amphilanthus. It's a catchy title, isn't it? It just rolls off the tongue. I'll say that again. Pamphylia to Amphilanthus. So we're back at the Renaissance. We started with Shakespeare at the Renaissance and now we're back at the Renaissance again for a couple of reasons why. And it's really interesting. There's there's more than a few callbacks here before we go into this poem to that first episode about Shakespeare. Um, so the first callback really is that during that episode about Shakespeare, I said something along the lines of, I, I caught myself. I caught. I caught myself at some point talking about there not being many women writing sonnets at that time in the court, and saying that's the way it was. I remember particularly that I was going to name women that wrote sonnets, and my brain completely blanked out. And so instead of saying the names of all these um, Elizabethan or Renaissance sonnet writing women. I uh, said something about I think and I don't I still don't know if it's true I said something about how how Queen Elizabeth tried her hand that's what I said as well I didn't just say just to up the patronizingness of the whole thing I didn't just say Queen Elizabeth wrote a couple of sonnets I said she tried her hand no this 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 thoroughly incapable woman who who was able to lead armies and hold power at a time when a lot of people wanted to kill her and including the previous queen to her mary her sister who also wanted her dead you know with her father who who had a, a great way of ending marriages from um divorcing to chopping off heads to just creating new religions uh, so so you can imagine like this is a very 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 capable human being but there i am oh she tried her hand at a sonnet oh she tried it out idiot so that required me i think to go back and revisit this to revisit the renaissance and examine the work of a woman that wrote sonnets now while researching this this is interesting because in some places i've seen that um Mary Roth wrote, Lady Mary Roth wrote this this sequence that I'm going to read from today. It was the, the first sonnet sequence written by a woman in English. But then I read elsewhere that actually the first sonnet sequence ever in English was written by a woman called Anne Locke. So not even men and women. I, I read it from, from somewhere else. But no, no, no. Anne Locke, she, she wrote a sonnet sequence based on one of her psalms. And that was way back way before this back in the 1500s she wrote this and so i'm not too sure there is a bit of one of those authorship questions as there is about shakespeare to do with Locke and Locke, and we're not going to talk about Anne Locke today we're going to talk about mary roth as always i'm going to give the biographical details about her life and just setting the scene for the poem because even though this poem is written as one sort of um, quasi mythological figure addressing another we should look at the uh, we'll have a quick look at the sonnet tradition again especially what the role that gender plays in the sonnet tradition 
and then we can sort of apply that to our critique of the poem after I've read it. But I think it's a really good idea to, to look at the historical background, to look at the biographical background, and to also look at how sonnets were normally written, the courtly tradition of the sonnet. Um, Mary Roth was a part of the, of the court. She was a part of the aristocracy. Her uncle was Sir Philip Sidney, one of the great originators of the sonnet in English, one of the people that popularised the sonnet in the court. He was, a, he was a greatly admired figure. He died relatively young in his 30s. He died from a, a wound of his leg in battle. And, and the story goes that he died in, on, from a gunshot wound to his leg after he'd taken off his, his armour from his from his thigh to give it to another soldier and then when the when the when when he was dying someone offered him water and he noticed that there was an injured soldier next to him that might pull through and he said his need is greater than mine and just so everyone loved this guy everybody loved this guy after after he died but he was a fantastic poet wrote one of the great poetic criticism pieces as well he wasn't just a great poet and and a soldier and uh, I, I, I guess a, 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 a man of estate, but he was also he was also a sonnet. He wrote sonnets. He wrote poetry, and he wrote criti criticism of poetry as well. So and he was kind of a big deal. So his brother was the dad of Mary Roth. Her brother was less successfully a poet as well. He um, tried writing a crown of sonnets, but abandoned the task. He got about six poems in and abandoned the task so it could be said that this is mary roth sort of really really took it took on the work of her father and of her uncle as well she also had an auntie um who i think was called mary sydney let's have a look shall we mary sydney and she was married to a very wealthy patron of the arts the earl of pembroke the second Earl of Pembroke, Henry Herbert. So they often had a lot of, uh, sort of thinkers and artists and poets around their gaff, around their stately home. And she would stay there quite a lot. And Mary Sidney, I think, sort of in some ways took her under her wing. Now, Mary Sidney was, was herself a writer. Now, while she wasn't publishing poems of her own, she did publish translations of poets and so you know she was and anyone who has translated poetry especially translated poetry in a way that adheres to the form that the poem was written in it's not just translating it is writing poems in its own right unless you're doing a really dry literal translation that is not trying to reproduce the actual effects of a language in another language of the original in another language then that is still writing poetry it's a very creative task and you need to be a poet to be able to do that so Auntie Mary Sidney was doing that. So in that household, she also got to know um, her cousin, grew up knowing her cousin, who was the future Earl of Pembroke, who was um, William Herbert. We'll hear a bit more about him later on. So Mary Roth was quite the courtesan. Well, you know, she was a lady of court, I should say. 
she was she was i think at one point so this was a court of a james the first that she was a part of rather than the elizabethan court queen anne was meant to be very fond of her she was invited to many masks she was invited to many events and so she was very popular in the court she was very much a part of it and when she wrote poetry she was admired her, she wasn't just some woman who was who was who was just oh I'm a woman writing poetry and I and no one will acknowledge me. She was acknowledged. She was acknowledged by Ben Jonson. She was acknowledged by plenty of good poets who we haven't looked at yet. <laughs> we'll be looking at Philip Sidney and we'll definitely be looking at Ben Jonson in the future. So she, she, she had the respect of her peers as well. So she wrote this sequence of sonnets and the sonnets were sort of from these these concocted mythological figures with these wonderfully catchy names of um so so catchy and so trippy off the tongue that I'm in no way you know that tapping noise in the background that is no way me looking back at my notes in order to say Pamphylia to Amphilanthus it's just it's so I don't understand why they don't name Hollywood films like that right now because it's just so it just it's so memorable it really sticks in my head Pamphylia to Amphilanthus. Pamphylia is the, is, the, is the female in this correspondence and Amphilanthus is the one that is addressed. So this was a, started off as a sequence of, of, of sonnets that she kept adding to. It was then published as part of a sort of longer piece, a verse, a, no, a prose romance. These were sort of, so it was like a poetry appendix to a verse romance she wrote called Urania. She used lots of different elements in this. So she, she took lots of elements of mythology. She also used elements of the pastoral. We talked a bit about that last week. So sort of shepherds contributing songs. That occurs also in, in this sequence of sonnets. To set the tone though, I mean, first, I guess the first things first is that when she started writing this, it was at least the 1610s. And this was at least two decades after the poetry in court craze it sort of died down poets had moved on to writing other forms and using other forms and so it's interesting that she sort of went back to the sonnet and the sonnet sequence even though she wrote plays as well but um and 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 the first sort of prose romance i mean she was an originator in many ways she was in many ways she was the first known woman to have to have written and published work like this not just in sonnet sequences so um, so, but she had this recurring theme. So already she was writing these sonnets when they weren't quite as in fashion as they once were in the court. They weren't as fashionable in the court of James I as they were in the court of Elizabeth. But also the, the, the ideas of courtly love that we find in the sonnets, especially in the Petrarchan sonnets, the original sonnets from Italy, the sonnets by Petrarch. Um, the fact that it's written those are written by men a lot of them are by men and, and the and the role that the muse plays so this idea of the woman addressed being the muse her being caught up with achievement you could say some some high and mighty unattainable goal now this chopped and changed as well in in the sonnet tradition so laura if we remember was the beloved of petrarch and Laura has gone on sort of was taken from the idea of the laurel which was the symbol of poetic achievement and the word poet laureate comes from that idea of the laurel as well so the woman that's pursued she was chaste 
and she is constant. Constancy is the great virtue that women have, I guess, in these poems. Men are philandering, they're going all over the place, but the woman is like their North Star. They're constant, but she must be chased. And she must not chased as in chased as in C H A S T E. You got it. So, um, yes, she must be chaste and pure and the man is corrupted, but the woman is his, his true spiritual north. So it's not just romantic love attainment, it's spiritual attainment. Therefore, the woman must be virginal and she must be constant and she must be pure. These were these ideas of courtly love. The interesting, and again, <laughs> I don't know why I'm bringing too many, um, too many pop cultural references, but I'll just say again, courtly love, just in case anyone thinks I'm saying these are the virtues of being chaste and pure are the virtues of Courtney love could be one of her virtues. I don't know the woman, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to make any assumptions about her, but you get it. Courtly love back to it. So you get the idea, the man, the writer, the one who's achieving everything, the woman, the goal, the true North, but this is a woman writing from a woman's standpoint about a man. Now, other sonneteers have done this. The idea of gender has switched around in Elizabethan literature, Renaissance literature. But I don't think there's anything quite like this, quite like this sequence. Um, and it is about a woman who is writing about her love for this man. And well, there are more than that. There's a few sonnet sequences, actually. So there's about there's four sonnet sequences overall divided by songs. And the songs follow the pastoral tradition. And so there's two original sonnet sequences. And then there's a crown of sonnets. And then there's this final sequence of sonnets after that. Um, the one I'm going to read today is the last one of the entire sequence. Now, there, so, so that's not me switching on my tablet to get my notes up again because I've forgotten their names. So Pamphylia... It's addressing these sonnets to the other catchily named Amphilanthus. And she is actually asking for his constancy. Amphilanthus is meant to roughly translate into lover of two. So there's a little clue for you. So she loves him. He seems to have his love going a few different places. And so what is she imploring within him? She's she's choosing to love him. There's a sort of internal struggle in the in the early sonnets. Then she resolves to love him. This leads her to great despair. Then there's this interesting crown of sonnets. A, a crown of sonnets is a sequence of sonnets where the last line of each poem in the sequence, each sonnet, becomes the first line of the next poem in the sequence. So there's this repetition of last line becoming the first line, carries on, gets to the last line, that becomes the first line of the next sonnet in the sequence. It carries on like that. There's an interesting conceit which is used in this sequence in which it starts off talking about being trapped in a labyrinth. And I'll go on a bit more about the form, but the interesting thing about the labyrinth being trapped and her not knowing which way to go is it's almost it almost echoes the form of a crown of sonnets, the going round in circles, the one link leading to another. So that's me summarizing this. So and then the final the final sequence in the in these sonnets, it, it kind of takes on a, a darker tone again, a more despairing, but dare I say slight consolatory tone. This this tone of I can't well, we can't be together. We can't be together, but love can carry on. 
and I'm going to give the biographical details because she did get married to Sir Robert Roth. But before she married Sir Robert Roth, she was she was having, I guess, what you could call an affair with a young with a well, probably an older man at this point um, with. I said I'd do it. I said I'd talk, talk about him later on with William Herbert. Oh, yeah, him, her cousin, the third Earl of Pembrokeshire. <laughs> third Earl of Pembroke. Not looking at my notes. That's not me looking at my notes. The third Earl of Pembroke, her cousin. She's had it having an affair with him. And there seems to be quite, quite the affair going on between them. Now... This man, well, let's just say he uh, he put it around a fair bit. How do I know that? Because he had an affair with another woman of the court. And he, he knocked her up, got her pregnant. And there was some pressure for him to marry her. Now, he was from a very rich family. So there was a pressure for him to marry someone from an equally powerful family or equally wealthy family to consolidate the wealth. You don't want to just waste marriage on some person you just fall in love with or something stupid like that. Goodness me, what are we, a bunch of 19th century romantics or something? No. So he he's put it about, I think he got put in jail for a little while because he wouldn't marry her. And then they sorted out a marriage for him. And she got married too. Mary Roth got married. She married, uh, well, Mary Sidney, as she would have been called, married Sir Robert Roth. They didn't seem to get on very well. It wasn't a very happy marriage. Um, he died before her. And things seemed to be on better terms about the time he died. But even uh, I think people pointed out that he was a drunk and he was very jealous. He probably had reason to be jealous, to be fair, because her affair with the Earl of Pembroke, um, William Herbert, it continued. It continued after they were both married. This is a statement of fact because he kept visiting her. A, a handy little euphemism, if you know what I mean, along the lines of how's your father? Maybe he did actually ask her that, though, being that that was his uncle. How's my uncle? Going around for a bit of a how's my uncle. I guess that's what happened to the cousins, isn't it? So, yeah. So they're meeting up for a bit of how's your uncle every now and again. And... um she ends up having an, having a child, as far as we know, that is the son of Robert Roth, becomes the heir of Robert Roth. He dies shortly after that, and then their child dies as well, and she gets disinherited because of that, because she's no longer the the mother of the heir. So I think it, I think his estate, Robert Roth's estate, went to his brother. So she fell out of favour in the court because of this. She was no longer, there was no longer sort of the, the wealth. She was no longer wealthy. She couldn't afford to to attend these balls and these masks for a start. And so she did fall out of favour in the court, but she carried on writing poetry for a while and publishing her poetry. But she also had two, what we call, what they called at the time, natural children with William Herbert, with her cousin. So those children didn't die. I think they carried on. They grew up a, a girl and a boy. So they had children. So it just goes to show that this affair carried on and they were very much in love with each other, I'm guessing. Or who knows with this gentleman, with this gentleman, where his true affections lie. And so what am I saying? I'm saying, well, obviously, now we, we have a background and we can perhaps see 
really the the, the character you know it really is mary roth addressing perhaps um william herbert william herbert earl of pembroke in the sonnet sequence pamphylia to anphilamphus trips off the tongue so smoothly so buttery smooth um, I'm going to say more about the form afterwards and a few more things so the final sonnet from the sequence Pamphylia to Amphilanthus by Lady Mary Roth my muse now happy lay thyself to rest sleep in the quiet of a faithful love write you no more but let these fantasies move some other hearts. Wake not to new unrest. But if you study, be those thoughts addressed to truth, which shall eternal goodness prove, enjoying of true joy the most and best, the endless gain which never will remove. Leave the discourse of Venus and her son to young beginners, and their brains inspire with stories of great love, and from that fire get heat to write the fortunes they have won, and thus leave off what's past shows you can love. Now let your constancy, your honour, prove. So, in the context of what we know, assuming that it is very likely that these these sonnets are through two mythological style figures addressing the love of her life and the father of her surviving children um we can see the sadness about this we can see that this is one of these letting go poems maybe you've been we've all been there if you've been alive you've been there the point when you realize you love someone but you can't be with them anymore i think most people have been there at some point in their life you don't just suddenly stop loving someone you um but you kind of move on you move on and you, you get on with other stuff and uh i i guess she didn't stop i mean most of us we get on and then we we don't really you know we don't really love those people anymore in that sense but it seems like she did but wanted this to be a quieter sort of i guess unrequited love another another poetry a sequence about unrequited love um uh, there's a few aren't there sonnet sequences the famous one being shakespeare there's a link between this and shakespeare which i will i will entertain once we've just finished this little look but but, but we're going to look at this poem a bit more so yeah let's just go through the through the argument my muse now happy lay thyself to rest sleep in the quiet of a faithful love so yeah sleep in the quiet of a faithful love this isn't sort of the, the, the tempestuousness of romantic love she's sort of disavowing romantic love almost now it's meant to be in another part of the sequence that she um the crown of sonnets is actually um she cusses uh cupid and feels that she's cursed herself by cussing cupid so or dissing cupid as as they say in the Elizabethan or James the first times, but she so she she wrote the crown as a gift to Cupid to sort of apologise, but but I think now she's disavowing Cupid again um, by talking about this quiet faithful love. So now, as far as I know, William Herbert, I could be wrong, 
that's my my catchphrase isn't it from this this is how i think i cover myself every time i could be wrong but he, he, as far as i know he wasn't a writer of poetry so i don't know what kind of writing she's talking about maybe it's love letters that that he's writing to her perhaps um write you no more but let these fantasies move some other hearts wake not to new unrest maybe she's addressing herself nice muse maybe she's talking about the muse as in you can see i haven't really thought this out well enough see i was thinking the muse is him but maybe she's addressing the muse as in the muses so while the muse is obviously identical in the tradition of the sonnet you know laura is the muse she's the beloved and the muse to petrarch maybe this is different now she's actually saying to the muse this maybe she's saying she's not really addressing her love i don't know my muse now happy lay thyself to rest sleep in the quiet of a faithful love write you no more but let these fantasies move some other hearts wake not to new unrest so is this the poet is this the poet saying to the muse go away you're needed elsewhere I'm beginning to think that's it. I think maybe she's not addressing. Maybe she's not addressing. She's addressing love, maybe, or addressing the muse. Rather than her muse, if you know what I mean. The muse rather than her muse. Write you no more, but let these fantasies move some other hearts. Wake not to new unrest. I don't know. But if you study, be those thoughts addressed to truth, which shall eternal goodness prove. Enjoying of true joy the most and best, the endless game which never will remove. Yeah, no, mate. I'm, 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 I'm tossing that theory now. I don't know. Maybe he writes. Maybe he doesn't write. I don't know. Um, my whole brain sort of turns to sl goes to sleep to tell the truth at some points of this poem. It's been a struggle. I really wanted to talk about Mary Roth because I, I, I think she's an interesting person. She's an important writer in a sort of sociological sense, and she's an interesting character. Like a lot of these guys that I picked to talk about, I can't say that most of her poetry set my heart on fire from a technical standpoint um there are some quite ordinary lines in this poem that i find the poem itself very moving because it's this goodbye to love and i think there are some really interesting points in it but the language itself can be quite dull in places i think so um there's a lot of single syllables for instance a lot of single syllable words that I think when used well, like by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, when she's almost doing it like a prod to the chest at the end of her poem as she makes an ultimatum, it, it just sort of deadens the music of it a lot of the time. And I, and I found a lot of um, Mary Roth's poems in this sequence, they did have that kind of single, lots of single words, quite, yes, single, simple language in that sense but it just didn't really have that it's more of those multi-syllabic kind of uses of, of those multi-syllabic words that really bring about the necessary modulations in the meter and so i think the meter feels a bit lumpen and thudding in places in this poem myself i think it's the first time i've been quite critical of the poem it's not that she's a bad poet i, I think one one of the issues is that, that she's picked a really difficult form to write in for an English speaker, let alone to write a sequence of poems, and it takes a lot of skill. And I think she displays that skill, but the skill itself is is still something that ties one hand behind her back. And you can see why Shakespeare and Spencer sort of came out with their own versions of the sonnet in order to make it more amenable to the English language and give themselves more freedom and you know room for movement. Um, 
So yes, some other hearts wake not to new unrest, but if you study Bebo's thoughts address to truth, which shall eternal goodness prove, enjoying of enjoying of true joy the most and best. I th- it's just not a good line. Enjoying of true joy the most and best. It's um I know that look I've said before, I've said before that um there are no objective standards in art. I said this at the when I was going wandering off on one in a previous podcast, and I feel that way, and and and, and I still stick to that. So why am I saying this isn't good? I'm saying it because there are certain pleasures that I am not getting from this. I could totally disagree with the argument of the poet, but their use of language can provoke certain pleasures from me. That's all I can say. I'm not. I'm not saying these. You know, I'm not venturing into the realms of objective badness or objective goodness. I'm just saying that there are some reasons why I don't think this is works as well for me as some of the other poets we looked at. But I like the lines about leave the discourse of Venus and her son to young beginners, and their brains inspire with stories of great love, and from that fire, get heat to write the fortunes they have won, and thus leave off what's past shows you can love. Now let your constancy, your honour prove. So yeah, she's saying this, like just this, we're we're no longer we, we you know we've been through that phase you know young beginners in love that's 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 the business of Venus and Cupid, but she, so she's asking for it. She's talking about a quieter love, not the the romantic love, not the love of eros. So with stories, of, but but she still feels that they can they can tell stories. They can they can still inspire those people with with stories of their love, even though their love has passed. I find that interesting. And then finally, the final lines, the final couplet, and thus leave off. Well, we're done, aren't we? And thus leave off. What's past shows you can love. Um, I wonder what that's meant in. I mean, it could say you. It could be quite simple. You have shown yourself to love me in the past. So, if we look to the past, we've seen evidence that you can love me. But maybe it's her saying, "What's past shows you can love," as in, you know, what we let go of, what we leave to the past. That's what it, you know, leaving stuff to the past shows you can love. Does she mean it in that way as well? And the final line, which is a bit of a sting in the tail. Now let your constancy, your honour, prove. So the past shows that he can love. I guess back to that original meaning that she's saying, but by being constant, you can prove your honour. Your love is shown by the past, but your constancy right now proves your honour. You no longer have to prove your love, but you should prove your honour. I don't know in what way she's begging for his constancy. Is it just a faithfulness to her and her children to have a duty to her and her children, their children? Or, um, I don't know, is she asking for more from him? Is she asking for him to, to, to be with her? How can he be with her? He's married. I'm not sure. I don't know. I guess she is asking for a form of constancy, that virtue, but a different kind of constancy that is being asked for by the um by 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 the other sonneteering gentleman so as i said already it's written like a petrarchan sonnet or it borrows more from the italian sonnets than it does from the english sonnets there are aspects of english sonnets in this like the final couplet for instance but it uses less rhyming words so the rhyme scheme is a b b a 
A B A sorry, A B B A A B A B. So again, like an Italian sonnet, while she switches it around a little bit, it's still only two rhyming sounds used throughout the first eight lines. And then um the turn is is as she turns to talking about Venus and her son, and then it's the rhyme scheme is C D D C A A. So yes, the rhyme scheme does change. It kind of goes more into a Shakespearean style of rhyme rhyme scheme, even though it has envelope rhyme which is more of an Italian style of rhyming or Italian style of writing a sonnet. And then the, and then the sort of sting in the tail couplet, which is a very Shakespearean device, but still she has constrained herself in quite a lot of ways. She constrains herself by writing a crown of sonnets for a start, which is a sequence earlier, earlier than this one in the, in this, in the four sequences of sonnets that make up this piece of work. But also she, um, writes in this way that she you know it's very constrained but the argument has been made so she's she's it's more difficult to write a sonnet with fewer rhyming sounds especially in the english language but she's written a whole massive sequence of all these poems in this way as well and part of that is a crown of sonnets so there's just this constrainment all the way through there are so many more rules you know that these these eminent males shakespeare and spencer have kind of shaken off some of these shackles and kept the shackles that they needed you know to to, to be able to write to write their sonnets but but i think sometimes it, her, her, she's willfully compromised her own work with the constraints that she's put on it but I guess the, the the link people make is have the constraints that she's placed on her own work. Do they reflect the constraints of her own social position, her own ability to talk about her love, her own ability to live with her love, which she can't. Are the constraints of her life evident in the constraints of the poem? And that's what we should be looking at. And I think that's a fair argument. Maybe it's quite a modern argument to make the kind of argument that modern people will make when we make our own narrative of 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 when we look at we look back at one of these early female sonnet writers do we kind of place our own narrative of oppression on it perhaps but it historically is valid as well i'm going to say one more thing about the gentleman because this is interesting and i and i only found this out moments ago before i started recording this and it was a right little sting in the tail because William Herbert has already been alluded to in this podcast. This is our second trip to, to the Renaissance in this podcast. We've moved all over history. And in our first trip to Renaissance, we spoke about William Shakespeare. And we looked at the, the Shakespeare sonnet sequence, his famous sonnet sequence, and how the first hundred and something poems are all poems addressed to a young man. Then they're addressed to the dark lady. Then there's a sort of weird love triangle thing that happens as well after that now william now i knew that one one of the candidates for the young man who the young man actually was and they always said that the young man was a was a rich and powerful young man probably a patron as well and so one of those pat uh, patrons was henry rothersley the earl of southampton but the other candidate for the young man this gentleman that Shakespeare was obviously in love with and was it was definitely an unrequited love you've got it yeah the, the second candidate was none other than step forward Mr William Herbert can you believe it can you believe it Shakespeare was into this dude as well 
now now some you know so so the young man and and maybe and many people say he is the more likely candidate of being the young man that shakespeare was writing to that was who was he he was besotted with so this this poor woman that we're writing whose work we're reading about now who's written these mythological figures about i guess the, the great love that she can't have the father of of her surviving children the great love of her life was also the muse for the most famous sequence of sonnets in the English language. I mean, Mr. Earl of Pembroke, William Herbert. No idea what else you did with your life, but here's a hand clap for you. Now that's, yeah, so, so this guy, this guy caused, is just, a, he was a patron of the arts. He paid a lot of money to poets and writers, while at the same time giving out the right kind of misery to them to create some of the great works of our time. And so, yeah, but her and Shakespeare, who'd have thought this same dude? I went and looked at his picture. I looked at her picture. She's got a great picture on Wikipedia. She looks badass. She's got this giant lute. I mean, it's huge. One of the biggest lutes you've ever seen in her life. She's just holding it out there. Just looking, just looking. Yeah, look at me. I'm cool. So I looked, I thought, I've got to have a look at this gentleman now. You know, this is the guy that they all fell for. You know, and, um, so I had a look at his picture on Wikipedia, his painting, his painted portrait. He wasn't all that. He really wasn't. I reckon, you know, the, the ruffled collar and the long pointy beard's probably covering up a bit of a double chin, like mine. And um, he's, he's going thin on top as well. He's doing that kind of weird spike, you know, puff up your hair thing to cover it up. He has got an earring. He has got an earring and that maybe, maybe the earring kind of says, oh yeah, I'm like that. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so I have no idea about what, maybe this man had unseen talents. Who knows? I'm going off on one, aren't I? But isn't that an interesting little, honestly, I found that out a minute. I didn't, this is how much of an ignoramus I am. I'm sure I've even mentioned his name in class, but I didn't put the two things together. William Herbert, William Herbert. Oh my God, it's William Herbert. It's him. It's him. Blows me away. Really blew me away. I felt like I was, felt like one of those sort of John Ronson or like serial style podcasts when they, we make a discovery of the last moment before we go to recording this podcast. We've uncovered another thing about this murder. That's how I felt. That's about as um, NPR as I'm going to get with this podcast. So now I think it is time I think, goodness me, I don't know how long I've been talking for, but I think it's definitely time for me to go to the other gentleman of love, the kiss-stealing, limo-riding, son-of-a-gun, Ric Flair, to make his noise. And this noise, whenever you hear this noise, it means I'm wandering off on one and I am no, I've abandoned the academic pretense that I've had for the rest of this podcast and now I'm just talking rubbish about anything so here we go thank you rick flair woo is an acronym for for wandering off on one i'm sure he intended that when he did it what was i going to talk about oh i could talk about objective quality again i could talk about the muse i could talk about so many things um objective quality i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna ram my head against that wall a couple more times again i think because I'm back at it. Um, oh yeah, and the Academy. I had a bit of a rant about the Academy in a good way. Um, one one great thing about the Academy, because I was reading reading up on Mary Roth, and I was reading her poems, and I wasn't really connecting to her poems. 
and normally when I'm reading up on someone before a podcast, something grabs me. And the final poem in this sequence grabbed me about an, about an hour. An hour. I was reading lots of poems in the sequence and th- there were good points to them. But there were other points to the poems where I just wasn't connecting with it. It wasn't lighting a fire in me. And and it's weird to have that as a... Well, I, I, what, you know, we all have our ways of deciding a good poem. But I really like that one um, by Emily Dickinson when she said, it may, you know, if it makes me feel like the top of my head has been taken off, then it's poetry. And I get what she means. Life is too short to be reading all the stuff that we think we should like. We should just find the stuff we like. We should give everything a chance, but don't give it too much of a chance. And so a lot of this podcast has actually been about me sometimes visiting poets I wasn't as into. And I I suddenly like them a lot more because I I, I finally give them a chance. And I guess this is the first poet that I gave a chance to that I still just wasn't as into after, after I'd done all the research. But the research was really interesting. But also the critical the critical things were interesting as well. And I found other people, other teachers that didn't really like her poetry and said that, that, that they tried teaching her, but the students don't really like her stuff either. And so they just have to admit, while again, not saying that there is objective quality in art, but there is enough to say that, hey, it's not working for the students. It's not working for me. I think it's important that we address this poet, but let's address this poet in a different way so we can sort of get what we find valuable from her and her work and then move on to something else. And he also said how this is always going to be clouded by her gen- her, her gender as well. So, but, but, you know, her gender has kind of cemented, it's weird, it's cemented her place in the canon because it's so important to find women who are writing sonnets during this time. And we can't expect them to always be, but we cannot expect people who are of historical significance to also fulfill the artistic quality requirement so so it's it's unfair to expect her to just randomly be as good as emily dickinson or elizabeth barrett browning so you know this is a time when not a lot of women were writing so so there's that so but but what what is interesting is is that i like how we can go into the aesthetics so so some one 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 essay said well one good thing about her is actually someone said they did find her poetry boring which leads us to ask why well let's look at ben johnson her contemporary let's look at all these other poets that were writing at the same time why aren't why is she boring why aren't they boring we get to ask fundamental questions about poetry and and my responses is about as lumpen as what I accused her lines of being. So me saying that some, sometimes it's just, they're just too monosyllabic for words, the language in a lot of her poetry. The images just don't really work for me. There's no, the, the music isn't quite there either. Um, those, are, those are a few criteria that I have. Now, other people might disagree with me completely, and that is absolutely fine. But it, it gets me to examine ideas of what I think works in a poem and what I think doesn't work in a poem and what my personal aesthetics are. And please, listener, do not think that I am ever hitting anything objective. It's always my personal aesthetics at work here. I just might share them with other people at times. Um, so that leads me on to say something else, which is I, I, I've listened to a lot. Um, that this is the importance of the academy. Different academic standpoints made this poet really interesting for me. She wasn't the, the me just coming at her work again and again and reading her work in my own little personal vacuum wasn't really yielding anything. And it was only when I started to look at different critical viewpoints about her work that she became much more interesting to me. But yes, 
she might not adhere to my personal aesthetics, my personal ideas of what makes a good poem, but I can see reasons for her value. I can, you know, even when I'm reading a, a, a critic, a female critic as well, who she is saying, I find her work boring, but her, because her work is boring, that is really valuable for me because I can, and the, the weird thing of suddenly thinking, oh, this poet is boring. Why do I find this poet boring? And then looking into my boredom when reading a poet and actually getting something from that that's really interesting and that's the importance of the academy that's the importance of having people who have enough time and enough resources to actually look critically at all these poets and all these artists you know people argue against the value of the critic all the time there's this miserable thing where people are always slating critics especially people from the performance poetry and spoken word end of things. And they're, and, they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're giving grief to academics as well. But I don't think they've really ever tried critics out. And I don't think they've really tried out the academic approaches to poetry. I think they've just got their own internal image of what an academic or a critic is. And they fear that. And they'll jump at whatever narrative they can quickly discredit that person with. They make things too complicated. They point to us and say what we're doing is wrong or um, the other idea of, I don't know, the thing against the academic, oh, they're just a frustrated, they're just jealous because they couldn't do it themselves. Um, I think one of the most important things in a critic is that, yeah, they don't do it themselves. That's I think that makes them a better critic in some ways. Why? Because they don't have a career that they're trying to advance either. Their career is as a critic and they just have to, and if anything, that's the good point. They're showing what it is like for someone to read the work who doesn't write that kind of work. And isn't that the people that we're trying to get our work out to? So, in conclusion, <laughs> I think I, I, I used to be Mr. Anti-Academy myself, and I've really changed my mind. One of the things was, of course, I liked to read a lot of books about subjects that I knew nothing about, be it psychology or evolution or the philosophy of human conscience, consciousness or neuroscience, stuff I'd never learned about in an academic setting. But I was all Mr. Anti-Academy until I was reading that stuff. And then one day, a little voice in my head said, yeah, mate. You wouldn't be able to read any of these things if there wasn't an academy. All of these guys are academics that you're reading. And if they weren't given the time and the resources to, to explore all these different things, you would not be expanding your knowledge right now. So, yeah, you might be missed out on a building site or sitting on the back of a tractor reading a really highfalutin book, filling your mind with stuff as you do other things with your body. But you wouldn't be able to do this if the academy did not exist. Um, and And I end on that note, which is... The academy is in danger too at the moment because governments, well, in the UK especially, are always framing education in the kind of career someone can have and the amount of money they can have and what the, what effect they can have in the economy. No, knowledge is the most important thing and knowledge should be a good unto itself. And if people want to go and find knowledge and explore knowledge, then they should not be disqualified from that because of their social or economic background. I'm going to leave it there. Wow, was that a go? I went off on one there, didn't I? And this is probably a longer podcast than I intended to, so I'll have to do some heavy editing. Really went off on there one there, didn't I? Wow, thank you for listening. Thank you to everybody that shares this podcast. If they, you know, when they enjoy it and they share it, I feel great. When they leave a nice review on iTunes, I feel great to see that. Any little thing someone has done to spread the news about this podcast and maybe introduce it to someone else that might enjoy it i am always massively grateful and dare i humbly ask if you could, if you haven't done that or if you feel like doing that then please do it please share it on twitter share it on your social networks 
um, leave a nice review on iTunes, whatever. You can contact me via my Twitter handle, Poet Nile, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L, or you can email me rustysonnets at gmail.com. That's all one word, rustysonnets at gmail.com. I'm going to leave it now. Um, yeah. Have a good week. Have a good thing, whatever you're doing today. Uh, thanks. Thanks again. Most of all, you know what? Thanks again for listening. That's the more than the sharing and all that malarkey, which is great because I like to get listeners. But just, hey, no, you don't have to do any of that if you don't want to. If you just listened, that's good enough for me. Thank you for listening. Hope you have a good one, whatever it's going to be that you do immediately after listening to this. Cheers. Bye bye. <laughs>